Welcome to another edition of Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM, WFUV, and WFUV.org. Emmanuel Bavari with you on this Sunday morning, already into the month of May. Hard to believe it, and 100 days into the new administration in Washington, President Biden giving his address to a joint session of Congress this past week. And no one better to react to it than John Davenport, Fordham philosophy professor, has penned several op-eds about potential systemic reforms in Washington, voting rights, so much more. I've talked to him a couple of times on the show, and he's one of Fordham's finest, truly, working on a couple of books about political philosophy as well. A lot to unpack about what's going on in Washington, what could be ahead, and the ongoing democracy battle. So let's get right into it. John Davenport, our guest on Fordham Conversations. John Davenport back with us on Fordham Conversations. John, appreciate the time. Hi, Emmanuel. Thanks for having me. John, we are following up the 100-day address by President Biden to a joint session of Congress. Let's start with a general takeaway on your end. It was a smaller scale uh, type of joint session. There was a new look to the upper chamber of the room. What's your overall impression of the speech? I thought it was generally a very good speech. Uh, The optics were a little odd. There's no doubt about that. Uh, It was interesting, as uh, the president noted, to see two women uh, on on the dais behind him, the vice president and speaker of the House, for the first time ever. Uh, So that was impressive. Uh, I think, as a lot of commenters have noted, that the president did especially well uh, in laying out the infrastructure plan and the plan to grow jobs. It really had an appeal to a broad swath of the middle class, uh, to working people across the country. I think there was a lot that people could connect there with. Maybe later in the speech, as we got to foreign policy, things might have become a little muddier, uh, but by the end, it it ended on a good note, a a strong note as well. Biden does not speak as loudly as some presidents have in in delivering this kind of address. Maybe they needed to turn his volume up a a hair, but other than that, I don't have any uh, huge criticisms. Now, the, the speech, of course, detailed what's happened the last 100 days and, and looked ahead into the future. Given that when President Biden's term started, it was a split Senate 50-50, a narrow Democratic majority in the House. Has the past 100 days surprised you at all? Were you expecting a package as large as the American Rescue Plan to go through? Where do you stand there in terms of the legislative achievements? Right. I was a little surprised at the size of that rescue plan, given that a $3 billion, a $3 trillion, $3,000 billion rescue plan was passed last summer, and then another $900 billion one in December. But I think the White House was just getting reports from economists that this was the size needed. And they also clearly saw uh, a a once-in-a-generation chance to expand aid to to families with dependent children, you know, to improve food stamps. Uh, They've argued, I I think correctly, that this bill that was the rescue package passed, uh, you know, in, I guess, early March, was uh, going to bring the poverty rate among children down by half, a 50% reduction. 
So I think they were basically leaping on their chance to do some large things with that. Uh, and the ambition is enormous with this almost $2 trillion infrastructure plan as well. At least with this one, there's some effort to pay for it. But now that they're no longer in majority or control of Congress, now the Republicans are complaining that, uh, oh, the government's overspending and the deficit's going up. And uh, I thought one of the best things in Biden's speech, if I may say, is that he reminded Americans that the Trump administration, with help in Congress, pushed through an enormous tax cut in December of 2017, which immediately pushed what had been a declining annual deficit back almost to almost a trillion dollars a year by the end of Trump's term. And, and so that, you know, did not really deliver on its promises to bring a lot of American companies, a lot of companies back to do more business in the United States, stop them from offshoring jobs and taking profits overseas and all the tax dodges that I think a lot of Americans will relate to the president's points on that. And so it's, it's really hypocritical, in my view, for Republican critics now to say, well, you know, we cut taxes in fat times when things were going well, when we should have been saving up a, a reserve fund, an emergency fund. And now when you need to spend to get out of an enormous recession and to rebuild the country uh, and to deal with long-term problems that we've had for so many years in areas like infrastructure, now you're spending too much. I mean, it's just unbelievable. So on that, that's probably the, the area in which I must say I uh, I, I side with President Biden most strongly. Um, and I think a lot of other Americans in the center and the middle and some Republicans may agree with him on that, too. It is crazy how fast the calendar moves in Washington because it's May now and you're basically half a year in to President Biden's term, first term as president. And then all of a sudden, later this year, early next year, all the focus will be 2022 midterms and it, it seemingly just began so given that the american rescue plan has passed you have the american families plan looking to be passed you have the american infrastructure plan looking to be passed how much of this do you think is feasible to go through ahead of full-fledged 2022 midterms time where many prognosticators think the levers of power in washington could shift a little bit right it seems um at least 50-50, if not more, that the Republicans will recapture the House next year. There's always a bit of a, uh, a boomerang effect, as we know, in American politics. So there's a very general problem uh, with our whole federal system of government. Uh, the way that our two-party systems work is such that, uh, you know, the incentives to oppose the other side uh, are so great that, you know, we just want to defeat, prevent, block obstacles. And, and that generally produces a swing back the other direction in the midterm. Uh, so the fact that, you know, you could have someone who's president for four years or even eight years and can get nothing done beyond the first year is just a kind of abiding feature of our system. Only constitutional amendments are going to fix this, uh, like the obstacle in the Senate. Uh, so it looks like, you know, now under the new parliamentarians rulings that each term or each, yeah, at least uh, each year, if, uh, if not uh, uh, more often, the party in control of the Senate will be able to pass maybe two or three things under this so-called reconciliation measure, but only things that have a major impact or are focused on budget. Uh, but that does include most of what's in the infrastructure bill. 
So in short, I think, to actually answer your question finally, <laughs> that um, <laughs> infrastructure package will pass in some form. Uh, and maybe one more thing involving, you know, a lot of spending or tax changes uh, later in the year. And then that might be it. That might be literally all that Biden gets done uh, in his first term in terms of major legislative things. Occasionally an issue will come along uh, where there's a lot of uh, consensus across the aisle, um, but these things are often largely symbolic. Uh, I applaud the Congress for passing a new law to crack down on hate crimes against Asian Americans. Right. Uh, but, um, I mean, that's an example. So, you know, Congress may be able to do things like that. Uh, but, um, you know, solving our, the problem at our border, uh, dealing, you know, with a, a long-term path to, to regularizing and stabilizing our immigration process, uh, finding compromise on gun control, all of these things which can't be passed through reconciliation seem very unlikely, sadly to say. I mean, this is, will not change until, you know, both the filibuster is eliminated in the Senate and the way that parties are structured, if you have automatic runoffs, as we've discussed, uh, ranked choice voting in elections, that changes the nature of the parties. That could change everything in the way Congress works. But for now, yeah, it seems like basically it'll be this year and done. And then the president will have to focus on foreign policy uh, or something else. But I don't know that the infrastructure bill will pass in this gigantic form. Uh, it's true that the, the federal debt is increasing quickly, uh, and even some Democrats are worried about that. I think uh, that it might have to be, you know, some compromise might have to be made with, with Joe Manchin and Senator Sinema from Arizona. You know, there may be two at least to maybe three or four Democratic senators who are going to have doubts about parts of this. On the other hand, maybe some outreach to Republicans, you know, if they compromise and say, well, we'll let you cut here and there some things out of the plan, maybe they can get a handful of Republican votes. You only need 50 plus the vice president to clear most of this bill through the Senate. So started with infrastructure and the families plan and of course the already passed American Rescue Plan, but, but there are more far off maybe uh, progressive dreams, if you will, like adding a 51st state uh, in Washington, D.C., Puerto right. Rico, probably not in that equation uh, at this stage, but right. also a commission created to explore adding justices to the Supreme Court and potential reforms there. Mm. So given that it's a 50-50 Senate, there could be a couple of landmark pieces of legislation for President Biden's first term, but do you think it's far-fetched that D.C. statehood could be achieved in the, in the current form of Congress? I have to say, I think the Democrats have really stumbled on a number of these issues you just raised, and I don't, frankly, understand the strategy. Um, the, the idea of adding Supreme Court justices is a... Uh, a total disaster for them. Uh, and if we want to absolutely guarantee a landslide for Republicans in the midterm elections, then I would say pursue a law that obviously wouldn't even get 50 Democrats, let alone, you know, 60 uh, senators to, to pass the Senate. Uh, so that's never going to happen. Their strategy on that ought to have been uh, to go forward with really what is a bipartisan proposal to regularize an 18-year term for Supreme Court justices and actually say the number is fixed permanently in the Constitution at nine, unless there were a later amendment. 
So this requires um, nothing more uh, than a, a regular law. It doesn't actually require a constitutional amendment. It would require 60 in the Senate, though. So you would have to craft it in a way that would re, you know, get support from at least uh, 10 Republicans plus those centrist Democrats, Manchin, Cinema, maybe a couple of others. This uh, would have been a much better strategy for the court. If you put that proposal forward, it would generate a lot of public discussion and it might just squeak through. Uh, odds might still be against it, but it wouldn't be completely dead in the water like this proposal you know, to add Supreme Court justices, which does nothing but create bad optics for the Democrats and drive people into the Republican camp. Now, some of the other things um, you know, that you were mentioning, like uh, Puerto Rico, D.C., instead they decided to put D.C. statehood first. Uh, even on that, I think they've stumbled. Uh, that should have that push should have begun by reminding people across the country that Congress actually in the late 1970s passed by two thirds majorities in both houses of Congress in the House and Senate passed a constitutional amendment, no less, that basically would have granted something equivalent to statehood to D.C. Uh, what it did was not make D.C. a state, uh, but rather um, give it representation in Congress, just as if it were a state, you know, members of the House and two senators. That, I, they might have started with just a version of that proposal uh, and explained its history. That would have made it harder for the Republicans to paint this just as a power grab. Even better, in my personal view, I think they should have started with statehood for Puerto Rico, which is still stuck, I believe, and there is one House committee that's considering it. It may move forward eventually here. Because honestly, I think there's probably a much stronger uh, chance for some bipartisan support on that. So I simply don't understand the strategy. Uh, I don't, it, it, it looks maybe one hypothesis is that on the Puerto Rico issue, that the current administration and uh, leaders in Congress are simply bowing to the demands of Nina Velasquez and uh, AOC who are known, although both being of Puerto Rican descent, uh, to oppose statehood for Puerto Rico. It's seemingly in you know, pursuit of some romantic uh, Marxist dream of an independent Puerto Rico that less than 10% of people on the island now support. So that I just like to heap a little scorn on, on their role in this. And I, I wonder if that's why statehood for Puerto Rico hasn't moved forward. Uh, but again, that would probably have been a more easy bipartisan sell uh, than D.C. statehood. Even though you've written a lot about voting rights, another one of those uh, pieces of legislation that may be a little bit more far off, maybe a little bit more unrealistic at this stage, is H.R. 1, which has gone through the House uh, pretty easily and faces an uphill battle in the Senate, given everything that's gone on in Georgia, given everything that's going on in several battleground states carried by President Biden in 2020, that would severely restrict voting rights. H.R. 1 seems like the one combatant that would overturn these measures. But I think beyond the fact that that H.R. 1 could pass or not pass is the sense that when we enter uh, the 2022 midterms, there's still not going to be a consensus from both parties on how elections are conducted. Do you think that's probably the biggest issue at this stage? You're right. Uh, and there could be, you know, some disastrous result. It could lead to violence even. Mm. Um, you, know, you, you could have a sense maybe next time it'll be on the Democratic side in one state or another where 
there's so much anger over a sense that an election's been stolen, rightly or wrongly, you know, whether driven simply by like, you know, fake news, conspiracy theories, or because there's, you know, something there, uh, that we could get a violent outcome in a couple of years. Um, so here again, I think the the Democrats have stumbled to some extent. The president, again, in the State of the Union, repeated this push to pass H.R. 1. It's probably raising a lot of money for them uh, because they can send out, you know, a, a lot of, uh, of mail and, and appeals to people saying, look what the Republicans are doing. You know, they're trying to curtail the vote and, and limit early voting hours and uh, reduce the number of drop boxes and prevent people registering uh, to, um, to vote or to get absentee ballots. All of this is all true. Uh, it really looks like, you know, the strategy of the Republican Party at the state level in, in so many states is that, well, we can't win a fair fight, so we have to cheat. I mean, it, that's just literally what it comes down to. But in terms of getting something through Congress, H.R. 1 is far too ambitious. It, it has zero chance of getting 10 right. Republicans through in the Senate. And so, I mean, it's sad to me, honestly, that the that the Democrats haven't chosen a more modest bill to put forward that actually might get some way of passing. I sketched out what such a bill might look like, actually, in an article published in America Magazine. I encourage people to take a look at that. And the, the way to do it is to make modest changes. You know, look, every state has to offer this minimum amount of early voting days or opportunities. Voting hours can't be shorter than this. No one should wait longer than an hour at the polling station. You have to have this much drop boxes. Set some minimum standards for the whole nation, but then also give Republicans something. We are going to put in place uh, measures such as um, counting every ballot twice, uh, which is you know a double counting method to assure there aren't errors. Uh, give Republicans some um, something to say. Look, we've made the vote more secure. Even if all of this stuff about voter fraud is largely a fiction, uh, doesn't happen in numbers beyond maybe a hundred, couple hundred in these you know multi-million people federal elections, um, give Republicans something to hang their hat on and say, look, you know we did this bipartisan bill in the Senate and look what we brought you. We made your elections more secure because we got X, Y, and Z in this bill. Um, you know the, the law, the compromise law. Uh, no longer allows activists to kind of, you know, go through old folks' homes and get people to quickly, you know, put a signature on a ballot that this is one of the allegations, right, on the Republican side, right? Uh, people don't know what they're signing and uh, this right. vote harvest is going on. And so, you know, the, the Democrats could concede on that. So it seems to me like it really isn't that hard. If one professor can do it in a weekend to sketch a, uh, a bipartisan bill that might get 60 senators. For whatever reason, the strategy isn't to do that. It's to push this much more demanding uh, set of uh, federal voting rights, um, which you know might have a chance if, if the Democrats had 60 senators, but they've only got 50. Without giving away the entire article, and I encourage people to go check it out, what's your stance on federalizing elections? Because even if you do have common sense reforms that are agreed to by both parties, which would significantly help the future of the Republic when you consider people oh, yeah. accepting election results being fundamental in the fabric of everything, federalizing elections seems to be contrary to, to how the founders drew it up. So, so what's your stance on 
handing that over to the congressional level. You're right. It, there's a real limit to what you can do through regular federal law. Ultimately, you might need a constitutional amendment uh, to make it clear uh, that actually the federal government has some authority over federal elections. This would definitely be the case, for example, in saying, well, there are certain federal standards on how presidential electors are decided. Currently, a lot of that is simply left up to the state level. And in principle, there's nothing, according to current uh, court precedents, that would stop um, a state from saying, you know what, we're not even going to have uh, electors be determined by a popular election for president. Right. We're going to decide in the legislature who you know, who uh, our electors vote for, um, you know, in the Electoral College for for the president. So there it's possible that even the more modest kind of law that I've suggested uh, would get challenged and probably would get challenged in the Supreme Court. Um, and, uh, you know, it's possible that some part of it could get struck down in that it would limit what states can do um, in is if they want to say we, we're not going to have any voting days uh, or we're going to early voting days or, you know, we're not going to allow Sunday voting or, uh, you know, we're not going to allow anyone to sign up for a mail ballot for any reason whatsoever. Uh, you know, maybe they'll win at the Supreme Court level. But I think it needs to be tried. Uh, the optics of that would look egregious for the Republicans and would hurt them in a campaign if that happened. So it still seems like the best strategy for the Democrats to try to pass some modest federal standards and to make clear that, um, look, the federal government does have some role, even if it's state and county officials are actually doing the counting. And I don't think we want to take that away. If the registration's done at that level, uh, a lot of what would be done through a, a viable federal law would be incentives with money. If the state agrees to this standard or that standard, we'll provide funding for you. For example, the federal government could actually run a national voter registry. Some Republicans would love this. Why? Because you could say, look, the registry would show if someone has moved from Montana to Minnesota and is now still trying to vote in Montana. Uh, not that, that that happens hardly ever, in fact, but a lot of uh, skeptics seems to think it happens a lot. So a national registry would show actually, you know, where someone's registered. And if there were duplications in there, uh, it would correct them. If someone had died but was still on the voting roll, the National Registry would help reveal this. So maybe a lot of states, even those controlled by, uh, you know, Republican legislatures and governors, would opt into the system. So even if it were voluntary, and then it would definitely survive a Supreme Court challenge, it might get a lot of support. Uh, and really, the Democrats would lose hardly anything with that. Uh, you know, they, uh, they they would just gain by people having more confidence in the, the voting rolls that are there. And maybe in the compromise, they could even get on their side a guarantee that, look, states won't disenfranchise felons for more than, I don't know, 10 years after the end of their sentence seems pretty long. You know, if, if it's not murder one, but something less than that, um, then uh, if they stole a car and it was 10 years since they did their time, then they can vote. Uh, that might be the, the fair exchange. It seems like a viable bill, um, and it would definitely instill more confidence in federal elections and avoid violence going forward. So for some reason, uh, the, the leaders in, in the current administration of Congress seem to think they're going to do better with H.R. 1. Uh, 
I don't get it. John, the last couple of times we spoke, we've spoke about institutions and, and unity and, and kind of systemic functions that have prevented that from occurring between the two-party system. Given that President Biden came in and, and kind of was a unity candidate and wanted to bring the parties together to bridge a divide, to get stuff done in that fashion, 100 days in, and I'll leave you with this, do you believe that the parties are any bit closer together or is that divide greater than ever? Unfortunately, I think it's pretty much where it was last year and hasn't shifted a lot. I mean, there's always this little um, period of goodwill or honeymoon with a new administration, but it's a very small effect these days because the parties have just come to realize that they gain the most from, um, you know, being absolutely uh, opposed to letting the other party get anything done, even stuff they agree with, just because they don't want to let them notch a win. And, and that won't change unless you, you have ranked choice voting uh, so that you change people's incentives uh, and you get more independents and supporters of third parties to vote. And uh, yeah, you, you, you see that you know, people see their votes are not wasted. That totally changes the incentive structure. And I mean, take something like immigration. Maybe we can end with this. Uh, if there were really a strong push for bipartisanship, it can't just come from the president, right? It's got to come from people in Congress. Then, you know, I think probably Biden would be willing to sign uh, a compromise immigration bill, which after all, miraculously had passed the Senate, the Gang of Eight bill, back when George W. Bush was president. And then Ted Cruz helped to kill it in the House, weirdly, uh, although he's a senator. So you could revive a good deal of that. And again, you know, something that could actually get 60 senators, and this is not a budget bill, so it can't pass the reconciliation. It needs the full, under the current filibuster rules, it needs 60. So here's what you do, right? You, you give Republicans um, uh, items in the law that says, look, you know, we're going to make everyone who's currently protected under DACA have a path to citizenship. Uh, we're going to maybe increase the number of regular immigrants who we allow in to help various programs. And a lot of American companies want to hire uh, people under those programs, frankly. Uh, but then in addition, you say we are not going to, uh, you know, give citizenship in future to anyone else who's brought in, you know, in, during their youth. So we're going to, you know, put a, a strong uh, line on that. This is the end. We're doing this only once. And, um, you know, then you have ways of strengthening the border uh, and look at all this funding to crack down on the uh, on the people smugglers and, and drug gangs who this is probably the issue on which Democrats are losing the most and probably could lose them the midterms. So they really should have a strong incentive to move a, a bipartisan bill um, that allows Republicans to say, look, we've strengthened the border and reduced illegal immigration but also give the Democrats some of what they want, especially in terms of some people on the Hill apparently say that there might be some narrower version of that that gives citizenship to to DACA uh, uh, Americans, people who came in, you know, maybe when they were under 10 years old, their parents brought them. Uh, this is the category of illegal immigrants we're talking about here. Uh, so maybe that will uh, miraculously happen. I, I still doubt it, unfortunately. A big thanks to John Davenport for joining the show again. If you missed it, he's working on three books surrounding political philosophy, 
Number one, an argument for a league of democracies to take over the responsibility to protect core human rights and provide global public goods. Number two, a critique of four styles of argument for political libertarianism in favor of a conception of social justice based on common goods as capital, quote, endowments needed to sustain productivity and well-being in human societies over time. And the third and final project, an argument for a constitutional convention to fix the fundamental problems with American democracy and the federal government in the 21st century. If you missed any of today's interview, you can go to WFUV.org to catch the full conversation. And for WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Emmanuel Barbari. Catch you next week.